Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to episode 128. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host. And our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Love. She is the co-author of When Crisis Strikes, Five Steps to Heal Your Brain, Body, and Life from Chronic Stress. Definitely something we need as we are going through COVID or hopefully getting to the end of COVID uh, is definitely something to look at and something we need. So... Dr. Jennifer Love is a board-certified psychiatrist in addiction psychiatry and addiction medicine and is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and the American Board of Addiction Medicine. She is a award-winning researcher and international speaker and focuses on stress and the brain. So in our conversations, we're going to talk about what stress is, why it shows up, how our body responds to it, and how we can overcome chronic stress and really thrive in our life. So stay tuned for this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Addicted Mind. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Love, author of When Crisis Strikes. Jennifer, please introduce yourself. Hi, thanks for having me today. My name is Dr. Jennifer Love, and I am a psychiatrist. I'm also board certified in addiction psychiatry and addiction medicine. I'm in a large group practice, uh, outpatient, and so 
My sweet spot in medicine is the overlap of psychiatric symptoms, anxiety, stress, insomnia, etc., with either substance use disorders or behavioral addictions. I treat everything from trauma to schizophrenia, you name it, I do it. If it's in the brain, I look at it. Wow. So a ton of ton of knowledge and a, and a ton of experience, it sounds like. Um, too many years of higher education. We'll leave too it many years that. of higher education. <laughs> well, that I think that's going to be good because I have a uh, a ton of questions. As we were talking a little bit earlier before we started recording, I have a ton of questions about anxiety, stress, and the brain, and you know when we're in crisis, and especially this last year of COVID, all of that anxiety and stress. So I have a ton of questions about that. But first, I want to know a little bit more about you and. What motivated you to write this book and and put it out there? So I met my co-author. I co-wrote When Crisis Strikes with a Norwegian clinical neuropsychologist. Wow. And we realized how different our backgrounds are, but there was a lot of overlap. And when I decided I wanted to start writing, I thought that the blending of our perspectives would be interesting. We had no idea when we started this process of let's do a book together that we would end up creating this new five-step model for actually helping people address stress. We thought we'd just talk about the tools that are in the toolbox and how to use them. And we ended up creating a novel process for addressing chronic stress. And especially when you have multiple chronic stresses that pile up. So what's interesting is we finished the book, like our first manuscript was turned in in January of 2020. And so this was all pre-COVID and it was really directed toward all of the major life events that we go through as we age. Our parents age, we may have kids with special needs or someone in the family with an addiction someone gets divorced or has financial ruin. I mean, we go on and on. We have these chronic stressors in life that happen to us or the people we love. And that's who we had in mind when we wrote the book. And then COVID hit and it was like, oh man, like now everything's the worst. Like, like it just piles, you know, it added to the context because life doesn't stop. You know, your health doesn't freeze, your dad's health doesn't freeze, you know, your divorce process or your unhappy marriage doesn't freeze. Nothing freezes in COVID except the economy, right? And life as we know it. And so we were just thrust into this really unprecedented time. And uh, we had to wait till the end of the year for the book to come out. Publisher is like, we own you. You can't talk about these five steps until it comes out. So we had a really interesting year trying to like work with our patients and get people through it without getting specific about this new model we had created together. Oh my gosh. And it sounds like, like what timing here you have this book, even like the title when crisis strikes, and here you are holding that information. I mean, that's a lot. 
Right. Well, we talked about the principles in it and certainly with what I did with the patients that I see, um, but we couldn't in the interviews and everything that we were doing and then the webinars and the information we were putting out for the public to use, we couldn't go through the five steps specifically. We had to be a bit more generalized. So we felt like we were sitting on our hands a bit. Right, right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, uh, why for you before obviously before COVID hit, why this topic for you? Like why stress? Why chronic stress? Why write about it? Why put this book out? And why is it meaningful to you? Well, we've all been through it. And I'm in that category too. And I think, you know, as I sit with people hour after hour, day after day, and my days have become longer. And it feels like the hours have become shorter. Um, I just realized not only for myself, but there needs to be a way for people who can't access therapists to have an understanding of the tools that we use. And there are wonderful self-help books, cognitive behavior therapy books. So there's CBT and ACT and all this stuff you can go to the local bookstore and buy. But what I find is my patients get pretty burnt out. They get to chapter three or step three of 10 and and they just put the book away. And so they never really get to the fruit at the end because they're so exhausted. So we thought we need something that is accessible, that's easy to digest, that makes sense, that doesn't require too much effort, but isn't too simple. (laughs) You know, it's complex enough that it meets the needs because stress is never about the thing that happens. Your divorce is never about your divorce. It's about your past experiences leading to the divorce and what was your experience like with your parents. And, you know, the, the crises that we have in adulthood are viewed through the emotional lens of our childhoods and, and our lives up to that point. And so we wanted to bring away for people to gain an understanding of why they were feeling the way they were feeling all the physical symptoms that come with chronic stress that people don't necessarily connect They say, oh, I'm not anxious, but they've had this backache and didn't really have a back injury except for maybe 10 years ago and why my back's hurting again and, oh, I'm just getting old. And we wanted people to really be able to pull all of these things together. And I remember at the beginning, I wasn't so thrilled about the idea of chronic stress. I wanted to get into something that felt a little bit more like me. And then someone in the field said, you know, everyone's going to have one of these events. And I went, one of these events? Like, what are you here's talking my about? 2000, here's my 2016. And I listed, you know, and I got I had like five or six within a nine month period. And it hit me. I'm like, okay, like if this book is for no one else, like this is the book that I needed in 2016. And I'm not some special human. Everyone could use these tools. So we decided just to jump in. So you could really relate to this material. In some ways, you created this material for yourself to be able to help yourself in a way. Well, it was, a like I said, it's a rearrangement of the tools. So I have 14 years of medical training. So I have a lot of tools. But, you know, I like 
to take complex things. When I'm working with like someone like a nutritionist, I'll say, okay, I want you to talk to me like I'm in kindergarten. Like, tell me what to eat and what not to eat. I like things to be straightforward. And I, I used to be a professor and that was kind of my specialty. Here's all these fancy things you need to know, but here's how we make it get into your brain in a way that won't leave. And I think sometimes we need to be handed things easily. It's hard to work. And so for me, like when I was in residency and realized I had become pessimistic because there's this really just malignant personality situation at the hospital I was working at. And I realized it followed me home. It, it got into my bones. It seeped in. And I, and I knew I needed to get back to my kind of carefree, optimistic personality. And I thought, hey, you're a psychiatry resident. You can do this. And my first thought was, Ugh, you work on people all day. Now you have to come and work on yourself. Right. And I was like, oh, like I heard that negative thought. Like I heard it. So for me, in the middle of that swamp, I had to create a game for myself. I had to make it so the techniques that I was using didn't feel like work. And so as we sat down and created these five steps, it's not quite a game, but we had to make it seem like it would flow, but not be a drain of people's energy. And so I think that that's one of the things I specialize in. I have been chronically drained of energy by life and circumstances, and you can still do these steps despite feeling that drain. And you can still find motivation even when you're in the middle of that drain. Oh, I mean, that's that's awesome. So really taking that information, simplifying it, making it easy, accessible, so that you can you can you can get all the the benefit from it with not feeling overwhelmed. And I, I can relate to that too. Kind of like there's so much here to do and I'm not feeling well and it's just overwhelming. So it can be mm -hmm. it can be difficult to to do that so really being able to simplify it and from your sounds like from your own personal experience as well so one of the things before we go into all the steps i i want to talk a, a little bit about like stress and crisis and mm -hmm. what that looks like because you said something that i think a lot of people can resonate with it's like sometimes you're under a lot of stress and you don't even kind of realize you're under a lot of stress or like stress is in the body, but you don't even know mm -hmm. it. You get so used to it that you don't even see it's, it's there where maybe anxiety is more apparent. And I would, I would like to just discuss that in more detail a little bit, because I think that would be helpful to people who are listening. Yeah. So when I first was a med student and was working in the hospital for the first time, I remember when the fire alarm went off and I responded like anyone would. I had this panic, like, oh my goodness, we're in a hospital. No one told us what to do if the hospital catches on fire. Like there's hundreds and hundreds of patients, you know, like my mind, like I was freaking out. And I looked around me and no one did a thing. No one moved. Nurses kept writing. Everyone kept doing something. And what I learned was there were procedures in place and you don't do anything unless the fire is right there. There are fire doors, there are containment. And it got to the point where, you know, I learned that the fire alarm goes off 
and you just go about your day until you're told, no, this is you now. And I remember like going down to the cafeteria, taking the stairs and here's all these firemen running up the stairs to get, you know, past us. We're standing to the side, you know, you learn that, you know, you kind of get used to that alarm because it goes off all the time and there are plans in place. And I think that we do that in our lives with stress because we have families, we have kids to feed, we have jobs to do. Unless that alarm is affecting me, like we kind of block it out. But those stressors, like our brains are, the human alarm is in the brain. And we aren't wired to ignore it because we're wired for fight or flight. Humans evolved like other creatures to, you know, we used to live in caves or whatever under trees. We had to know where the bears were, where the wolves were. We had to be on our guard for predators. So we had to listen for the twigs snapping in the middle of the night. And as we moved into cities and suburbs and everything, most of us don't have to look out for bears. If anyone's listening in Alaska or Northern California, I have friends who have bear camps. But most of us don't have those worries but our brains haven't caught up. The alarm system hasn't evolved. It's still the same. And we can't go on constant alarm. And that alarm sends these chemicals throughout the body. And so chronic worry becomes physical. We gain weight, we have disrupted sleep or sugar cravings, salt cravings, fatigue, muscle tension, like it all comes out physically because our brains are now in survival mode. Right. Even though we may not cognitively recognize mm-hmm. that because we're so used to it, like that alarm, it just keeps keeps going. We, we kind of cognitively ignore it, but our body doesn't ignore it. Right. And the more we have when we're younger, the more used to it we are, the less we acknowledge it. And I've had patients come into me who were so anxious, I could feel their anxiety like palpating out of their bodies. And I would say, you seem a little anxious today. No, I'm not anxious. I've never been anxious. And literally just, you know, push back. And I said, okay. Um, I think your memory problems from anxiety, I'll think of a different word to use for you, but I don't think you have dementia. And sure enough, we get them into some EMDR, come back and they come back six months later and they're like, wow, Dr. Love, I had no idea. I was anxious my whole life. I didn't even know. And it's like this shocking rebirth at age 60 because they just never knew the word. They were so used to it that they just kept going and going and going and their doctors are treating their gastrointestinal reflex and their irritable bowel syndrome and their back pain and, and all of that. And they, they never made the connection because it started when they were so young. So they were so used to it from such a young age that they, this was almost the state of heightened alert, I guess, maybe I could call it. So the state of heightened alert is just so present in the body, so normalized that a person doesn't even know. Yeah. It becomes a fuel. Okay. It becomes a fuel. The fuel in life is stress. That's all they know. And I tell my patients, you know, my goal 
with working with you is to switch over that fuel from stress to joy. And they look at me without fail, like I'm speaking a totally foreign language and they suddenly stopped understanding the words coming out of my mouth because, and it is just as challenging as switching over like, you know, a diesel car to one of those granola corn oil cars or something. (laughs) I think Daryl Hannah did that. I saw an article in a yoga magazine about it, but it is that like we are that wired many of us for stress that it is literally in our veins and switching that to joy is a process that just seems so impossible, like and foreign to many people. We get comfortable with it. We get used to it. It's our normal. We don't know how to feel any differently than we feel. So what's happening in the body when we're under that kind of unconscious stress what's what's ha- what's going on in the body so the the way to start explaining it is to talk about the crisis response system this is the system that initially when there's a stress when there's that first stress the second stress that really kicks in it's that fight or flight we're all familiar with and so the brain you know is kind of like command central and senses the danger and sends hormones out to the body. And the first responders are the adrenal glands. And they send out a bunch of hormones to prepare the body to fight or to get out of the situation. So adrenaline, right? We get that epinephrine and that kind of gets everything going. Um, Cortisol, it takes all the glucose the fuel that we have in our bloodstreams and shoves it into the muscles and into the brain so we can think and we can run. Our resources are physiologically diverted to the areas we need for that crisis, um, whether it's you know jumping out from a car or you know whatever you know that crisis is initially. We don't need to reproduce in crisis, so our body's not focused on that. Um, It's really only focused on the needs at the time. That system is equipped for brief spurts. You're in the danger, you get out of the danger, or you're eaten. End of story. And it isn't made to go on and on and on. It needs to rest. The whole body needs to rest after that. And so what happens when the alarm doesn't turn off, when it keeps going and going and going, those first responders, those chemicals that come from the adrenal glands can't keep up. And so you can have cortisol that loses its kind of, there's a normal pattern of cortisol release throughout a 24-hour period, and then we get these bursts with stress. So the cortisol starts pooping out. These hormones can't keep up. And a lot of stuff happens. So when you get all the energy into your muscles to run or fight, but you're sitting in a boardroom or a traffic jam, then you're going to have tense muscles because you aren't running. You aren't utilizing that energy. And then what's going to happen over time is um, your blood sugar level keeps falling because your body's shoving the glucose into the tissues it thinks needs it. And so you start sugar craving. And you're exhausted. And then you get these cortisol, you know, levels that change. And so your sleep gets off. You may wake up in the middle of the night 
And so it just kind of starts this cascade of events that leads to weight gain, especially around the belly or like around the face, like jowls Mm -hmm. is what I call it, (laughs) growing jowls. It's definitely a pattern of weight gain. It's like a panda bear. Stress does it in the middle. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wow. So the body is getting the signal to, to run, but we're not running anymore. And then the cognitive brain just starts to normalize that but the body's still stressed out. And then I guess then we're left with trying to cope with that stress, but we don't even know that we're stressed, if that makes sense. Well, what happens, some people do know they're stressed. Some people can acknowledge that. But I think when people live with it chronically, you can't, it's like you can't expend your energy thinking about it all the time. So if you're in a contentious divorce that lasts for several years, and the person you thought was always going to take care of you is now tearing you apart and trying to take your children away from you and making stuff up like, you know, you're stressed, but you can't really treat that stress when you're in the middle of it. It's like you have to get out of the fire. <laughs> it's the first right. step. And then you put out the fire. You first have to escape. So when you're in the middle of a really long acting stress and you can't get out of it, you're in it. And so what happens is the body starts developing these symptoms because those stress hormones, they aren't expelled. You know, if you exercise, there's certain things that you can do to help get that cortisol out of your system. Um, But most of the patients, by the time they come to me, they've seen their doctor, they're on all these muscle relaxants and pain meds, and they have chronic back pain and all of these things when really the heart of everything is this horrible divorce, horrible custody battle and loss of family support and financial problems and, you know, really heavy, emotional, significant stressors. Right. So how does it, how does a person start to jump out of the fire? Okay. So I'm glad you asked that because this is why we wrote that book. So we look at this physiologically like what are the kind of key symptoms? We've got a chapter in there, I call it the science of stress, but it isn't very scientific, like I said. Like when you're stressed, it's like just shut up and talk to me like I'm a kindergartner, you know, just tell me what to do. So we explain it very simply so people understand what's going on in their bodies. And at the end, we have this chapter called From Pain to Sane. And it's just a symbol, like five things you can do to target those five, you know, major symptoms that you have. There are whole books written about burnout, adrenal fatigue. This is not one of them. This is a book that helps people walk out of the crisis in a way and where they come out having had a renaissance. This is not a survival guide. This is a, how do you go from like, I'm just laying on the ground emotionally and don't want to move and feel like I can't stand up to 
flying away on a hot air balloon, right? <laughs> These are wow. the steps. That's what this book is really focused on. Um, so we have a little bit in there about the body because uh, it is such an important part of the journey of, of healing from these chronic uh, stressors. But it's really the five steps that I think um, that we created that is the main tool that we're trying to use in this book. So these steps can can begin to help you move out of this kind of chronic cycle of, of stress and anxiety that that someone might be in, especially from their childhood, mm-hmm. that kind of sets them up for that. And then they're in this chronic cycle. These, these are the steps to start to to step out of that and, and do something different. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming it sounds like beginning to uh, change how the brain processes these events. Yes. It's a retraining of the brain because we are wired to focus on the alarm. And as much as as a med student, I got used to fire alarms. Um, you never get used to code blue. Okay. Right. That when it's your floor or your area or, what, or you're on that code blue team, wherever it is, you listen and you go. And so in that sense, we, when that code blue is going, we need to help people train their brains to pull off of the code blue so they can actually do the things they need to do. If all I did was panic when the code blue alarm went off, I wouldn't be able to think when I got there. And as a physician in an emergency, you have to think. You have to stop. You have to like, is this an airway problem, breathing, circulation? There's like a checklist a survival checklist that you go through um, when you get called to a code. And there are steps you have to follow and you can't do that if you're in a panic. So there's a sense where that alarm goes off, but you have to act. And that's what these five steps really do. We have to get the brain away from the alarm enough that we can focus on the things that will actually get us through the crisis until that alarm turns off. And would you say that if you've had chronic stress in your history, you don't have those those skills or those skills aren't automatic to help you regulate? They, You kind of go back to old patterns or old ways of dealing with stress? Well, oftentimes, you know, we want to escape. When things happen that are huge, people, like the brain always wants the fastest route of making something end. Right. So we air into many of us into that escape and there are different forms of escape. You know, a lot of my patients, whether they're going through a divorce or the pandemic, just start drinking more alcohol. I mean, alcohol became the joke of the pandemic. You know, if you have a drink in each hand, you can't touch your face. You know, there are all these memes and jokes and everything. And actually studies show the rate of alcohol consumption went up significantly. There was even a study, a poll um, survey that was done on people who were working from home and what percentage of those people were drinking alcohol during their work hours. And, And it varied around the country, but some states were like 50%. And higher. 
of people drinking while they're working at home. So some people escape into alcohol, drugs, pornography, video games, work. You know, it's just anything to distract my brain from this. I need to pretend this isn't happening. I can't tolerate it. And so the first step in our model, so the model, the five step is based on the fingers of the hand. And so we start with the thumb and the first step is get a grip. And to get a grip on the problem, one, you can't escape because you can't focus on it if you're high right? Um, or you're at work 20 hours a day. And it's naming the problem, but not just what it is. It's the context. Okay. So what's going on around us in life right now? What's going on financially? Like, what is my life situation? Like maybe my parents sick, but I've got these teenagers and, you know, what is the context of the problem? And then we walk our readers through the digging process. In other words, what is the meaning of this crisis to me personally? Because you and I, Dwayne, could go through the same crisis on paper and have completely different reactions to it. Because again, like I said earlier, we view life through the lens of our past experiences. So if I had a really adverse event in childhood and that is somehow getting triggered today, my response today might be bigger than yours. Right. The, 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 the brain remembers our history and, and takes that with us as, as a lesson. We can't escape our history. Right. My favorite saying is, if it's hysterical, it's historical. Right. So <laughs> if how I'm responding now is totally disproportionate to what's going on in the room that I'm in, then my response isn't about what's going on. It's about something in the past and something here is reminding me of that. And unless I understand that, I'm going to have behaviors that are disproportionate for the stress that I'm in. And that's going to bother everyone around me. And it's going to make me miserable as well. So that's all part of what we walk people through with that first step of really having a good understanding of all the dynamics in play um, for this crisis. And so they can walk through these steps in, in in a pretty simple way to kind of slowly walk them out of this and out of all of that that mm-hmm. all of those hormones firing off and and keeping them in this kind of chronic state of tension and stress and pain right i mean to give you i don't know a 30 second summary the pointer finger is pinpoint what you can control and it's teaching people okay like First, write down everything you can't control because that's what our brain is focused on, right? All the stuff that's out of our control. Um, And then we give the tools for, okay, well, what actually can you control? And then what can you do about the things you can't control? And we are not creating a big to-do list. We are training the brain to look away from the crisis and to start seeing options. We are challenging that sense of helplessness that comes with crisis to a duel. So we don't have to feel so helpless. Step three is the middle finger. It's called push into motion. And it is exactly what you're thinking. It's giving your crisis a middle finger. It's finding the fire in your belly. We use some motivational techniques um, to get started with some of the things that you've written down as options to help you start moving forward. 
And then once we kind of get there, we have the fourth step, which is a time of reflection. It's a ring finger. It's more intimate. It's called pull back. And we walk people through this process of kind of who am I and who do I want to be and what's important to me and what do I value? You know, if I'm someone who values peace, I can't keep taking my ex back to court a hundred times over and over again. And so then the final step is, is the pinky finger hold on and let go. And that's where I picture this hot air balloon is when you really want to kind of fly off into the new part of your life, you have to let go of the anchors holding you back. So whether that's a grudge, whether that's an unhealthy relationship, you know, and then what are you going to hold on to? I want to hold on to my sense of humor. I want to hold on to these healthy habits. So it's really through these five steps going from this alarm and like, I feel like powerless and there's nothing I can do in this situation all the way through to kind of reclaiming me, myself, who I was before this crisis and maybe even a better version. It sounds like this is something you can train the brain to do kind of over and over. Like you get these five steps and you do it and you get in the habit of doing these five steps if you do them enough. And it, and it, and it sounds like you could do this, I want to say quickly, but you could walk, if you have a crisis that comes up, you can walk through these steps and the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it, the more resilient you're going to, you're going to become. And over time, the less stress you're going to have. Yeah. And so what's interesting, you know, as I said, we created these five steps pre-pandemic. And so my co-author and I were using them. And so about halfway through 2020, we were just getting ready to go into printing. And we talked with the editors about having um, a kind of section at the end we call the COVID diaries. And the two of us wrote up our stories of, of kind of basically what was going on at the time, still early in the pandemic, and how we were each using the five steps. And, I, and what we've done in the book, I've, I've never read a self-help book before. I'm a reader of biographies. I love people. I love their stories. So the, the explanation of these five steps, it's just the first half of the book. The second half of the book is stories of how people have used the five steps in a dozen different situations from having a family member with a substance use disorder who's tearing apart the family to losing a loved one to suicide. I mean, we get at mass shooting. We get into some really heartfelt difficult, you know, spiritual crisis, midlife crisis situations and show through story how people apply those steps. And then we have our own for COVID. Um, So people not only learn the steps and see them applied through the example we give in the first half of the book, but they really get experience in seeing how the steps can be practiced in various situations. So they get really good examples and, and they can see it and maybe see some of their own life situation in yeah. in the book, which I love that part because you when you read it, you can you can apply it to your own life. You can see that you're not alone in that in that process, that this is a human condition. Like this is this is what mm-hmm. it means to be human. It means to be alive, is is this, and that we can cope with our own biology 
and some of the problems that come with our own biology uh, in a modern age by understanding it and, and applying this information. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, some of those stories at the end were challenging to write because we've known people who have had those stories. And I know people who have lost loved ones to suicide. I've lost right. patients to suicide. And there were some vignettes that I would say to Dr. Hobick, like, you got to take this one. I can't write it. It hits too close to home. And, and he did the same for me because we're not just the experts in the field. We're humans. And right. we've experienced these too. And there comes a point when you're writing a book and you live in the book. Like the book is in your brain all the time. You're breathing the book. It's just the book is in your bones. And there was one time when we were writing, I just said to him, you know, because we have this nine hour time difference. And I said, after this 4 p.m., I can't write anymore. And once the sun goes down, I can't write anymore. I have to clear my head before bed. And because it was just too emotionally draining to, to sit through, to kind of re-experience, even though I wasn't using the exact experiences that we've had, but to re-experience the things that I know these people are feeling and to write it in such a way that people understand it, you know, it's impossible to do that without feeling your own situation again. Right. Right. And I, 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 I'm glad you're saying that and and you're bringing up your own experience because I think a lot of times we tend to, to go into ourselves when we're in stress and we look out at others and we, we think everybody else has it all together and, and, you know, they don't have any stress and sometimes stress can be so invisible in, in others. You know, we, we, we are so used to it. We hide it. So I'm glad that you bring that up, that this is also part of you and your humanity and who you are and that this is something you use as well. I think it's just, mm-hmm. um, it helps people feel not so alone in stress and anxiety, which they aren't in reality. We feel that way. You know, it's interesting. I am i don't know if it's because I'm a psychiatrist. I think this probably happened long before um, growing up. But I'm always the person that people assume is fine. Like they look at me and they're, they're like, that one has it all together. And which serves its purpose protectively and causes other problems. Um, and that's something I've known about myself. I was in a, a chat last night with a group of friends and we were talking and someone said, okay, we're going to play a game. People who know me well will know blank. And what I said was people who know me well will know I'm emotionally vulnerable. And they're like, what? And one guy said, wait, 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 you're more emotionally vulnerable than the average person. And I said, no, I'm emotionally vulnerable, but people assume I am not. I'm the same as everyone else, but people assume I am not. So the people closest to me know that right. I am. Um, and, and I think a lot of you know these stories in the book, there's a community that we aren't alone as we go through this crisis. It feels very isolating. And you look around and your psychiatrist seems like she has it all together. And I do in a lot of regards, but there is community 
in suffering. This is why we have support groups for cancer and for people going through divorce and everything, because there are people who have gone before us and people who will come after us who are going through all these life crises. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that. Absolutely. That it's, it's part of the flow. It's part of the way the, the, the life works. One question I have is, well, I, I hope we're getting to the end of COVID, but how have you seen COVID impact chronic stress and this whole pandemic? Because this is kind of a new level. I mean, before COVID, we have our life stress, we have a lot of stress, but then this is just like a total world stress, a world event. Yes. And you are like opening a beehive with this question. What I saw, my experience, my observations in the pandemic was that the pandemic very early on stopped becoming about the pandemic and was made into something political. And that changed or defined how we responded worldwide to this pandemic. I tell people there's a difference between a thought and a belief. If I think I'm bad at math and I get an A on a math test, I can go, hey, maybe I'm not so bad at math anymore. But if I believe I'm bad at math and get an A, I'm going to say it was a fluke. Must have been an easy test. Everyone must have done well. So our beliefs are firmly rooted in with who we are. And politics has become about belief systems, right? So when you take something that is apolitical, like a pandemic, and should you, you know, how do we spread this pandemic? It's something as humanity, we all should be on the same page for, logically. When that is tied into political ideology, then that is no longer a thought. What do you think we should do about this? It becomes a belief. I don't believe this is a thing. I believe this is not serious or I be- you know I believe you know that this is you know look at all these people who are dying. how can you say it's not serious? And it took us as a nation into a place of anger even more than fear. There was fear, but I saw a lot of anger. Because my patients, I asked them all, all the ones who are angry, I said, how much time do you spend watching the news a day? And it's crazy how much time people were spending on the news. And I said, do you feel better after? No one ever said yes. No one ever said yes. And we were just, as people, fed fire and we devoured it. And people took out that anger on everyone around them. And I had people on my Zooms and they're yelling. And, you know, I had a mom call me and she was yelling at me because her son had insomnia. And how dare you not see him? And literally, like, he called in, was making an appointment. I'm like, oh, I'll fit him in today at the end of my day. And here she she was just mama bear calling in and yelling and, and you know, threatening to sue me and all this. And I'm literally fitting in her son, who's an adult, by the way, like 30 year old man. I'm fitting him in on the same day for a non-emergency just because I know, you know, it's whatever, I'll do it. But I knew she was 
like everything was heightened, that anger is there because it was everywhere. And that's where I think the recovery process for us as a nation, as a world is challenging um, because we became more divided. Right, and right. Yeah, definitely. started making hope something that's external. If I had one take home thing, I want people to start thinking about hope because at the end of last year, people were talking about hope in an election, hope in a vaccine, hope was in the world getting back to normal. It was all these external things. And I started thinking about hope. And I actually think hope is internal. I think about mistletoe and I love mistletoe. I have since I was a kid. I don't know why. I just had this fantasy that like Prince Charming is going to come and kiss me under the mistletoe. Like, you know, my whole life, it's ridiculous, but there's nothing about the mistletoe. Other people see it and don't even think twice. I'm the one who injects my hope under that mistletoe. The hope isn't within me. The hope isn't magically in the airspace under the mistletoe. And we need to figure out what our hope is in and have hope reside within us. Um, Or we need to live under the roof of hope. That needs to come from us, not from outside sources. And so that's the process I'm hoping that people start working on this year and catching on to that their happiness their what they want in life and what they seek comes from within not from external circumstances yeah i i i I totally get that and and that hope is something that resides in our body i i believe that as well it's something we hold it's it's a it's a sensation it's something that we can generate ourselves and and i think will manifest itself in the world as we do that and and i do see like your comments about the pandemic that really resonated with me of how it didn't become about it became about a belief system which totally i think left us you know in a way that now we're arguing about not a pandemic we're arguing about a beliefs and and we can't get anywhere and we can't help anybody or help each other or help ourselves in that kind of frame, mental frame. Um, yeah, definitely both of those things. And, and so, I mean, I just like look at my own experience when the pandemic started and all of that, you know, it's like panic, uh, news consumption. And I finally had to turn off the news as well. I'm like, Mm -hmm. this is like, this is bad. I am, I'm under so much stress and, and it's like, and it's not about the pandemic really anyway. So yeah, I totally relate, totally relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we're, we're coming up on our time. I know we're, we're a little bit over. So I I had said this question earlier and you were like, oh no, (laughs) but it's a question I love to ask at the end of, uh, end of um, every podcast. If there's one thing that you could tell anybody out there listening, maybe he's dealing with stress or anxiety or feels overwhelmed, doesn't know what to do, what would you tell him? What would you want to, what message would you want to give him? I, I think my message is what I just said. It's hope comes from within. 
And as much as we have been knocked down and get up again and knocked down, and finally after you know the 80th knockdown, we just want to put our hand up and have someone lift us up, we still have the ability to rise. We have that within us. And crisis makes us feel we do not. And hope is what teaches us that we do. And it is normal for people to be without hope at times. And they can borrow someone else's hope. They can borrow mine. (laughs) I tell my patients all the time, you don't have to feel hope today, but I have hope for you. Um, and, And think of that as an internalized process. And that how we feel and how we view the future comes from within and isn't really dictated by external circumstances. That sounds crazy to someone who's going through a horrible life situation. If someone would have said that to me when I was going through my divorce, I would have said the F word. I would right, have yeah. you know, been like, F you, you have no idea, because it was really hitting one of those deeply buried fossils. But there's truth in that. And that's what these five steps are meant to do. They pull people through. It's that hand that walks you through to the other side of the fire so the fire can be put out. And you can do that from within. From within. Awesome. I, I, your book sounds amazing. I don't get to read everybody's book. I'm going to. So sometimes when I do these interviews, because I'm doing a lot of them and I haven't gotten to read it, but now I'm like, okay, I've got to get this. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to read it all. I just read the bio, but uh, off your interview. So I'm super excited to get it actually, because it, it sounds amazing. Well, I look forward to hearing from you after you've read it, see what your thoughts are. Awesome. Where can people find you if they want more information about you and uh, where can they find you? I am on Instagram, uh, doctor underscore author underscore Jennifer Love. It's a lot of underscores in there, but there's a lot of Dr. Jennifer Love. So it's, it's DR author Jennifer Love. I should pop up. I'm also on Clubhouse. Dr. Love, uh, Jennifer Love on Clubhouse. Um, so if anyone's on there, um, I like to pop into some interesting rooms from time to time. So people can find me there. And that's probably the best way. Awesome. I will put all of those in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com so people can find that there as well. And um, thank you so much, Dr. Love, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dwayne. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 128. Don't forget, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, you're finding it valuable, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get the podcast a lot of exposure and helps people find the podcast and find this helpful information. Also, If you want to continue the conversation online, just think about joining our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there. All right, everyone, have a wonderful rest of your day and I will talk to you on the next episode.
It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.